2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights Thank you for listening. The historic First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta in Midtown is known for its ongoing commitment to community outreach and the arts, This Saturday, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and conductor Jerry Ho will perform in the church sanctuary with Jens Korndorfer, the organist and music director of First Press. We'll preview some of the majestic music on that special concert, plus a novel idea for non-alcoholic drink consumption. Later this hour, the founders of Zilch Market tell us about their creative cocktails and non-alcoholic pop-up bar. First, the play Intimate Apparel is set in 1905 and tells the story of Esther, a 30-year-old African-American seamstress trying to realize her dreams in New York City. The Pulitzer Prize-winning play by Lynn Nottage is on stage now at Actors Express. Actor Vallejo Woodbury portrays Esther, and director Ibi Owalabi join me now via Zoom to talk more about the production. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much for having us.
2: Thank you.
0: Would you talk about
2: what inspired Lynn Nottage to write this play?
0: Yes. Lynn has talked about how Esther is based off of her grandmother and how she was surrounded by love, but was at times a little blinded to it because of different societal thoughts on on how love should be portrayed. And I think that shows through Esther. Esther is a late bloomer. We get to see her entire universe in the play, but there's still so much value on romantic love. And that is what Esther strives for.
2: And I gave just the briefest summary of the play. Would you add anything that would help us understand an overview of this story?
3: Uh, It's always tough because I never want to give too much away. I'm very anti-spoiler. I would say... That there is, you know, as Evie alluded to, it is a journey of searching for love and finding a specifically romantic love. And and how this particular journey for this seamstress goes as she navigates her
2: world. Mm. Esther has a range of clients from wealthy white patrons to prostitutes. How does she interact with each of her clients?
0: One thing that Valet and I talked about is that even though there may be moments of insecurity for Esther, the world where she is the master and the the most adept is the world of fabric. And so watching her navigate these spaces with these different range of people and realizing how much knowledge and love she pours into her craftsmanship, I think it makes us fall in love with her a bit. And I think that that's how she arrives in these rooms with such confidence, no matter who the person is. The language of fabric carries her forward.
2: I love this character. And my mom's name was Esther, which endears her to me all the more. I love that. The Tony Award-winning actor Viola Davis played the role of Esther in the play's 2004 Off-Broadway premiere. Valea, did you watch any videos of her performance or or have you seen any performances that inform or added to your prep for this role? I did not. Viola Davis is unparalleled.
3: And you know, if I'm being completely honest, I, I think it would have psyched me out to watch video of her. Now I think I would love to see clips or video of her performance, but in preparation, it was really so much better for me to approach it, leaving previous visuals out, especially one from such a huge figure as Viola. To be stepping into this role, knowing that she originated it, was enough of a gift and privilege and challenge
2: all in and of itself. <laughs> I like that answer. I know musicians similarly who don't want to listen to recordings of a particular work that they're going to be performing, you know, historic recordings, for the same reason. You, you need to make an interpretation your own safely before listening or comparing it to others. Yeah. Why do you think Lynn Nottage wanted to make the setting of this show in the early 20th century?
0: Something that I've thought about is the beautiful effectiveness of how, I will not say how timeless it is, but how its themes are just so very strong. I think that something that was wonderful about choosing this point in time is that you know yes women had the right to own property and things but there was still such a big taboo about being unmarried at Esther's age and in ways that we think oh well you know that's of the time that technically has has not gone away Mm -hmm. so um, I think that Lynn shining a light on how how much of our history has a through line even in the most unfortunate of ways is what is so effective about the play.
2: Esther's working towards saving enough money to open a beauty salon for Black women. How does she convey the importance of that effort to create a space for her community?
3: You know, there's a pretty specific scene that she has with one of her clients, one of her clients and friends, there is some lovely overlap in the folks that we see Esther interact with, you know, between those people who are really only clients and those who move into the world of friendship. Esther says very specifically, you know, the space I'm talking about is a space in which you get treated the way no one treats us. No one treats Black women with the... Respect with the expectation that they deserve the same amount of pampering and comfort, and need those things that, particularly at the time, white women were treated. Or, in some ways, even now, there's a through line of, you know, it's okay to not be the strong black woman to to be soft and to need uh, care is okay. And so, I think. That scene in which she really says those words out loud, very specifically with no question about the why, that just echoes, I think, throughout the whole piece and throughout time as far as I'm concerned.
0: The countless conversations Valia and I had about Esther, one thing that was very important to us is how much Esther's heart is portrayed how even though she she has be- become one of the most intelligent you know business women and has really become very self-sufficient there's a part of her that still believes in love and still believes in the complete surrender of of love and i think you get a great great look into that when you understand how much she wants this beauty parlor as well
2: mm. if you are just joining us This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Intimate Apparel's director, Ibi Owalabi, and actor, Vallea E. Woodbury. The play is on stage now at Actors Express. This is for either of you, or both of you. Would you talk about her relationship with the fabric salesman, Mr. Mark? hmm mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. so one of the wonderful things about mr. marks being shown is it shows that she's desired by more than one person and that there is technically <laughs> romantic love it is just one that she cannot indulge in due to you know religious barriers and also interracial barriers as well so one thing that Vallee and I talked a lot about is how that love of fabric bonded them together they were two of the people we talked about how he's her best work friend if if you know if we're trying to put a platonic spin on it and how that love brought them together and that mutual love and admiration of each other flourishes through the show it's heartbreaking to think of their what if but it's also very encouraging to me as somebody who's directing it to see the ways that esther is loved and desired and there is no trope on her as like a sexless black woman
3: i think you really hit the nail on the head eb it is that relationship is a beautiful one for all the reasons eb said um, and especially because it. You know, it shows that she is desirable. Unfortunately, Esther just Mm. can't see
2: it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If this is not a spoiler, can you talk about how Esther's future changes once she becomes pen pals with George Armstrong, a laborer from Barbados?
0: Mm, I don't know if that's a spoiler. I don't either. I don't think so. Yeah. So one thing about this relationship with George that made, oh, it was so exciting to like find the layers of this in the room. When we really start to see how much of the loneliness that Esther has been shouldering to go through through life, how much of the hope is still there for her and and how much being inexperienced I think keeps a part of your your innocence alive. And I think that it keeps a part of your hope locked away until until truly activated by the potential of what if. And that may sound very general, but it's because I'm trying not to <laughs> give away. <laughs> but with that in mind, I think that was where as a fellow late bloomer, it, it broke my heart specifically for Esther, because we get to see her defend this relationship with all the people in her life and all the people that have love and concern for her. Because the the possibility of being loved in this way is something that she's willing to, to fight for.
2: Lynn Nottage's turn of phrase and gift for language is well known. Mm-hmm. Note Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. How is the lingerie a great metaphor for the title of this play?
3: I, I think in a few ways. You know, I think there's the very literal skill of creating these pieces. And as we you know mentioned earlier, this piece was inspired for Lynn by a seamstress in her, her life, her great grandmother. And I think there is the, the status that that skill affords her in the creation of these pieces that have such detail and such beauty. And the fact that they are pieces that are often hidden, that these beautiful Often elaborate creations are made for underneath, are mm. made for privacy, for private moments, and I think there's great parallels there to the Esther, the Esther that is underneath, the desire that is underneath for her, and the, you know, the the beauty. That is within Esther that is stated, and I'm, I'm hesitating because I, I don't think this is giving too much away. But you know, it's stated that Esther doesn't have a lot of outward beauty, but there's so much inner beauty and inner life within her that I think uh, really parallel the, the apparel and the title and the pieces themselves.
0: Just to add on to that, because that's so beautiful, Valaya, one thing that we notice pretty quickly about Esther is that as the creator of Intimate Apparel, she goes to the boudoir, like the, the, the heart of the, the, the place of privacy for these women and, and also technically Mr. Marks. And to know that there's somebody who navigates and gets to see the inner desires of people As we learn about her own desires through her her traveling in her little universe, I think we truly start to understand how intimate the play is. This is somebody who creates the type of clothing that is almost right up next to your skin, clothing that is truly just to make us feel more beautiful or to boost our, our confidence or to appeal to the one that we love. And for somebody to understand this on such a level as somebody who's never experienced it themselves, it's a wonderful parallel to how much we can confide in somebody, how much there is that type of person that we'd be willing to give our entire heart to who may not be having that experience themselves. So it's wonderful to see Esther live in that way um, and to understand her in that way. And I think that that's why the title really wraps that up in a very delicious way.
2: Director Ibi O'Halabi and actor Valea E. Woodbury. Intimate Apparel is on stage at Actors Express through April 17th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, Organist Jens Korndorfer joins us ahead of his upcoming performance with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra at First Presbyterian Church. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In 2018, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta presented a concert with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra for the dedication of their sanctuary organ. Now, the ASO will perform another special concert at the historic congregation in Midtown. Jens Kondorfer is the Organist Extraordinaire and Music Director at First Press. He joins us now via Zoom. Jens, welcome back to City Lights.
1: Thank you, Lois. It's great to be with you.
2: Please tell us the occasion for this collaboration with the Atlanta Symphony.
1: Well, about a year ago, one of our um, donors made a very generous donation and said, Jens, I want you to do something special. And I thought about what I could do, something that would be really special, and immediately I thought of our next door neighbor, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And four years ago, when we had the dedication concerts for the organ, one piece that I wanted to do was the saint Organ Symphony, but we could not do it back then. Because we did not have a grand piano as part of the, the sanctuary set up, and it would have taken up too much space to bring in one. And since then, we have purchased one and created a special ramp on the side. So now we actually have the space for that. So I called the symphony and said, can we perform the saint Organ Symphony at first press sometime in the next season? And then maybe, given that you will be over and we have the organ and, and this beautiful sanctuary, what about doing Poulenc as well? And so it took a while to make it happen. We had a date scheduled for January 1st and had to cancel that because of the rise in COVID cases. But eventually, here we are. And on April 9th, finally, this concert is going to take place. And I'm super excited about that.
2: Oh, with good reason, because the program is a feast of music for organ with orchestra. You mentioned the Sasson Symphony and the Poulain Concerto. Let's start with the piece by T.J. Cole. Yes. She's a Philadelphia-based composer, originally from Atlanta. What can you tell us about To the Universe?
1: So I'm very curious to hear this piece with the orchestra, because I, of course, have practiced the organ part. So this piece is for brass, strings, organ, and harp. And it is creating amazing soundscapes, from what I can tell from what the organ is doing, that are kind of reaching out to the universe that are trying to connect us with with the beyond. wait for the first rehearsal when it's all coming together.
2: Yeah. The organ concerto of Francis Poulin dates from the late 1930s. While the composer could be known for lighter works filled with charm and wit, this piece is serious. How would you further describe Poulin's organ concerto?
1: Well, I think it's a unique piece in many different ways. First, the instrumentation is very special. He retained only the strings and the timpani from the orchestra and eliminated all the woodwinds and brass. And the reason for that is that Poulenc felt the organ in itself is a giant woodwind instrument, a woodwind and brass instrument. And so if you had those instruments present in the orchestra together with the organ, they would be kind of fighting with each other. So that's why he decided to retain only the strings and the timpani, both soundscapes that the organ cannot produce, and see what he can do with the organ basically taking the part of the, the woodwinds and brass. So I think that's a fantastic idea that worked really well. It was an instantaneous success. So what, what he did is he used the, you know, it's a very neoclassical piece in the in the sense of the, the writing that he uses. He liked to go back, I think I can feel some influences of Bach in there, in the polyphony that sometimes you have in there and the, the echoes that, that he's creating. But yes, it is also a very bombastic work. I mean, just the opening of the organ, It's it is really a thunderous opening that is creating an enormous effect and then it is contrasted with you know very mysterious strings and all of that another thing that is fascinating about it is that Poulenc knew and appreciated the organ but he was not an organist himself and so he worked with Maurice Duruflé who was one of the foremost organists in France and Paris at that time to get this piece off the page and so when you know for for organists you always write so called registrations into the score that indicate that tell the organist what kind of sounds to use there's a funny anecdote that Maurice Duruflé tells about that encounter with Poulenc. Poulenc at one point he said, "You know, I want this boring sound of the orb. <laughs> and so Duruflé was like, well, "He probably means the foundation stops, you know, the bourdon and things like that." And he started playing and, and Poulenc went, "Yes, that's exactly what I had in mind." Uh, Poulenc
2: was a fascinating character in that. There was this insouciant side of his personality. And then he also became deeply religious. Do you feel that spiritual aspect of his personality, if you will, coming through in the organ concerto?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, often the organ itself, the choice of the instrument organ is something that hints at something spiritual because the organ is usually found in in churches. On the other hand, this piece was actually commissioned by a princess, I think it was the, the Princess de Polignac, And it was first performed in her salon where she had an, an organ and, and later also it was performed in various concert halls in Paris. So I don't think that was necessarily the, the case here. I do think you could possibly say that in this piece, Poulenc is expressing the struggle of life. You have moments of battle and in t- very intense and and serious moments and then you have very light-hearted moments there's a lot of of rest and and just beautiful melodies that are being sung by the organ or by the strings and so in that sense I think you could say that this is a this is a kind of a spiritual journey that Pulang is describing in this piece which finishes with you know it's this this very very quiet passage at the end where the organs just holding chords and their pizzicati and it's like the piece is coming coming to almost a standstill until you have the final thunderous chords. So I think yes in that sense I can see a spiritual journey in that piece. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a religious piece.
2: Yes. If you are just joining us this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. My guest is Jens Kornderfer, the Director of Worship and the Arts and organist at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. He's performing in concert at the church this Saturday with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. You mentioned the composer Maurice Durufle, who was just a masterful organist and contemporary of Poulenc's. He collaborated with him on this piece, as you mentioned. Both Durufle and Poulenc have associations with the Atlantis Symphony Orchestra through Robert Shaw. and were you aware of that in programming this piece?
1: No, actually, I have to confess I was not. Oh. This is fascinating to hear.
2: Well, Robert Shaw knew both. He called on Francis Poulenc as a very young man during a visit he once made to Paris. And Shaw told me the story. He showed up a day late. (laughs) (laughs) He was so absorbed in the score and so excited to meet the composer. He got the date confused. But Poulenc still received him, and they they talked about the Gloria and the organ concerto. And then, of course, with Du the ASO's recording of the Requiem is a keystone of the repertoire. So this—it's all wonderfully fitting. Now, for the grand finale, let's talk about Saint-Saens' Symphony Number Three. organ does not enter until the final movement. The work is known as the organ symphony. What else makes this piece extraordinary, and?
1: Well, actually, if I can just chime in on this, this fact that it's called the organ symphony, but the organ doesn't show up for a long time. I have a funny anecdote to tell about that. When I was a teenager, my dad once gave me a CD with Sanson's organ symphony. And at that time I had never heard of the piece. I knew the Poulenc organ concerto, I knew Gilmont, the organ symphony, and both of those pieces begin with the organ immediately, big chords by the organ. And so I remember I put that CD into my player and I started listening. And I thought there had to be something wrong. (laughs) Because there's no organ for 10 or 15 minutes or something like that. And eventually, of course, that is is rectified and, and the organ has its glorious moments. But I thought that was funny because indeed it's called organ symphony, but I believe Sanson's himself he called it symphony avec orgue, so symphony with organ, which is far more appropriate because it really is a wonderful symphony for the orchestra that also includes you know a, a part for the organ. I think for me, this to back to your question, the symphony is just absolutely grand in scale and scope. It is a true masterpiece, and and I think Sanson puts every, everything that he had into writing this piece everything that influenced him, like you have, you know, allusions to the DS era, the Gregorian planchon, you have his skill as orchestrator, the way he uses the the different instruments, what he does with them, how he develops the themes, it is just absolutely magnificent. And to me, all of this, it kind of, the grand, it, it builds and builds, and then eventually you have the organ come in with this thunderous C major chord, which is so impressive, and I think everybody is kind of waiting for that moment.
2: But not their association with this piece jens are you familiar with the movie from the 1990s babe
1: no i've heard of it but i haven't seen it oh it is so
2: sweet now if i tell you about it you'll say well this is for children well yes but not just for children although you have to be an adult who doesn't mind talking animals in movies. But it's a sweet story about a little piglet whose parents end up on the breakfast table at a farm, and he is very much in despair when he realizes this. And to get him out of his depression... He's taken on by two dogs on the farm. Yes, okay, they're border collies. They're adopting a piglet, and they teach him how to herd sheep. And it is a fabulous story, and it has a wonderful cast as well. You'll recognize some internationally (laughs) renowned actors in it. But it is the finale of the organ symphony that is used in this movie and when spoiler the little piglet not only learns to herd sheep but he wins the competition oh. uh, that moment is transcendent with the music, so.
1: Well, I have to watch that movie. You know, I'm in preparation for this concert. I've been listening to different recordings of the Organ Symphony and the Poulenc and, and, well, that one version of T.J. Cole's piece. And it's just wonderful to hear what different people do with it. But I think it's also wonderful to see what associations people outside of the pure music world have with this piece that they use it for the soundtrack in this movie to tell a story. Well, that's what's so special.
2: And it is one of my favorite movies, not just for children. I hope you enjoy it.
1: I'm sure I will. I, I look forward to watching it.
2: Since you arrived in Atlanta, you have demonstrated the importance of outreach for First Press. Thank you. Yep. I congratulate you on your efforts to build the community, to broaden the community, and, of course, for the wonderful music
1: you present.
2: Thank you so very much.
1: Well, thank you, Lois. It's it's very kind of you to say that. You know, I think as musicians, we want to work together. Music is not something that we do on our own, right? As much as I like to just practice for myself, it's always something different when you have people in the room. And as an organist, there is not that much music written with chamber music for organ and also pieces for orchestra and organ. They're not not that many. So I actually, I relish these opportunities to perform with others and to bring in other people. And and I think first press with our location right next to Symphony Hall to the Woodruff Arts Center, it's just amazing what can be done. you know, it's uh, the, the collaboration, especially with the, Julie and David Cushron has been so wonderful. And and I'm so grateful for all the great music that is getting performed at First Press. And it's just a joy to work with all of these people. It's, it's really, it's mutual. You know, I think we have wonderful facilities. We have wonderful instruments now with the this, this Steinway Grand Piano and the renovated organ. So it's just something, I think we have to use it for the benefit of everybody. And, and that, that to me means the city of Atlanta and beyond.
2: Wow. Again, congratulations on such collaborative work and outreach to the entire Atlanta community.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Jens Korndorfer, Director of Worship in the Arts and organist at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta in Midtown. This Saturday, he'll perform music of Saint-Saëns and Poulenc with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra conducted by Jerry Ho in the Sanctuary of First Press. The concert begins at 8 p.m. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We live in a society that often focuses social gatherings around alcohol, whether it's getting some beers at a brewery, a brunch outing, happy hour, or meeting for evening cocktails at a bar. What if there were a place to enjoy a non-alcoholic beverage in a fun environment? Zilch Market and Bar provides a safe space for non-drinkers with a multitude of non-alcoholic offerings. The creators of this pop-up experience, Lissy Eubanks and Savannah Rainey, join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights.
4: Hi. Hi. Thank you.
2: Would each of you please tell us why you chose to be a non-alcoholic drinker? Uh,
5: Yeah, so this is Savannah here. I got sober about three years ago. My three years is actually coming up on April 6th. But I stopped drinking because I obviously I came to the realization when I was 25 that I was an alcoholic. And, you know, it just, even though I was young, I realized that uh, my mental and physical and emotional health was just suffering from using alcohol and it was just the best decision for me at the time.
2: Well, congratulations on your upcoming anniversary and for recognizing what needed to be done.
4: Yeah, thank you. And I just celebrated my 1 year alcohol free. I stopped drinking completely after a few a few times of I would stop for a month or so and then pick it back up, but you know, I just got to the point where I realized that it was not doing me any favors you know I didn't feel like I was reaching my full potential and I felt like I was using it as a bit of a coping mechanism and so I decided to permanently take a step back and it's been the best thing ever.
2: Great how did you two meet?
5: Uh, We met actually we worked together at a restaurant for three years and then you know she got sober a few years after me But we just kind of bonded over that, and we became really close, and we've been friends ever since.
2: So what inspired you to create Zilch Market?
4: Well, when I stopped drinking, the first thing I noticed was that all of my drink options in restaurants just kind of went away. And I've always been very interested in, you know, the culinary arts and going out to eat. And, you know, one of my favorite parts was trying new drinks, But once you take the alcohol away, the drinks go away with that. And so Savannah and I started talking and we wanted to provide a way to still have that atmosphere, the social setting and trying fun new beverages
2: without alcohol. And what stereotypes are you trying to dismantle about sober living or living life as a non-drinker?
5: I mean, I think the biggest stereotype, especially in the business we're doing, is that uh, mocktails are just juice, um, which is not the case at all. You know, we curate and craft all of our drinks by hand. That would be the biggest one specifically in our business. But as far as just being sober, I mean, the fact that you're boring or you can't have fun, which is. I am 10 times more fun now than I was when I was drinking. I, I promise you that I was not I was not a cool person to be around when I was drinking. So I think just trying to, you know, get away from that from that stigmatism against getting sober, against not drinking.
2: Yeah. And then you also have people who don't drink for religious reasons and pregnant women and other health related reasons issues. I've heard of non-alcoholic beer, but how are the cocktail spirits and wines you feature, how are those created?
4: Well, they're created in a few different ways. As far as wine goes, a lot of those wines are de-alcoholized wines, which are wines traditionally made in the traditional way and then they gently remove the alcohol from that. So a lot of these products do have about 0.5% alcohol in them, which is about the same amount as a kombucha or a lot of food and beverages that we already consume, but it's low enough to be considered non-alcoholic. There are certain spirits and wine alternatives, however, that are made with ingredients to kind of mimic the taste and give you that feel, but with zero alcohol whatsoever.
2: Hmm. Have people been shocked to realize there's no alcohol in your festive cocktails or wine?
5: I think that the people that are coming to our events are not surprised, but people that I talk to like at my job or family members that aren't, you know, in my world every day, I do think that at first they're very confused. They don't really understand. But once I kind of explain it to them and why I'm doing it, and why it's important for our culture to have, they understand it a bit more. But I think that the people that are coming to our pop-ups know exactly what they're what they're getting and what they're coming into. Hmm. Would you take us through,
2: if not all of the beverages, some of your favorites that Zilch Market offers?
4: Well, we offer a lot of great products by themselves that you can add to your home bar, one of my favorites is Monday Whiskey. Uh, Monday makes a great line of spear alternatives, uh, as well, well as Ritual. They also make a line of spear alternatives. There is a local brewery called Right Side Brewing that is Georgia's only non alcoholic beer brewery. They're really great. And all these you can add to your home bar and make your own non-alcoholic cocktails. If you come to our pop-ups, we have a ton of already pre-made cocktails that are riffs on classics like old fashions, Manhattan's, things like that. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I saw Silch will have a boozeless bar and bottle shop pop up on April 8th at Taproom Coffee. What's offered at the bottle shop?
5: At the bottle shop, we have, we have a bunch of different spirits. Like she said, uh, we've got tequila alternatives, gin, whiskey. We've also have curious elixirs, which are uh, made to be drunk by themselves. We have mixers, simple syrups. We have sparkling sodas. We have beer. We have wine. So we're kind of offering all of that as well in our bottle shop.
4: And we off- also offer a lot of simple syrups and mixers, that you can add to alcoholic drinks. You know, we, we don't want to completely alienate people who do drink alcohol once in a while as well. So they can still come and find unique things to add to their own bar.
2: Does Zilch often have pop-ups at coffee shops in order to offer even more non-alcoholic choices?
5: Yeah, so far we've had most luck at coffee shops and it's mostly due to the fact that coffee shops are closed at night and it's not going to be an alcohol heavy environment. Uh, You know, our guests aren't going to be coming in and seeing liquor, you know, behind the back bar, which is something that, you know, we take pride in and not having an environment surrounded by alcohol. So that's where we have had the most luck.
2: Oh, okay. Some studies have found that Gen Zers around the world, along with their millennial counterparts, are actually drinking less than older generations did at those ages. Does that surprise you?
4: It is a little surprising, but at the same time, Gen Z especially is the generation that has been the most open-minded about a lot of things. And I think that includes alcohol. I think people are really learning to change their views on it and and challenge the things that society has taught us about alcohol consumption.
2: Mm-hmm. So do those research findings match up with the demographic you see and serve at Zilch? It,
4: it does. We actually have a lot of young people, which is really, really nice to see.
2: Yeah. I mentioned people not drinking alcohol for various reasons, religious, sobriety, pregnancy, health. What have you heard from your clients? What kind of feedback have you gotten about your providing a safe space to enjoy non-alcoholic beverages?
5: The reception has been overwhelmingly positive, and it's actually been nice for me and Lisa to see because, you know, while we both don't drink for you know, personal reasons. And with me being a recovering alcoholic, we have also seen pregnant women or people who do drink, but they don't want to drink every night and they still want to go out and have a good night. Like I said, it's been overwhelmingly positive. We've had people coming up to us at our pop-ups and thanking us for doing what we're doing. They can't wait to come to our next one. And at our first one that we did at Chrome Yellow, we sold out of our cocktails within like two and a half hours. It was total insanity. So we are just (laughs) extremely grateful.
2: Oh, teetotal insanity, I guess you could call it. (laughs) I'm curious about the future for Zilch. Your response from clients bodes well. Do you want to be brick and mortar? We do definitely
4: want to be a brick and mortar. I think our goal right now is to have a brick and mortar that doubles as both a bar space and a bottle shop. You know, we really aim to provide a space that feels normal, like a normal cocktail bar. And that's some of the feedback that we've gotten that's been so positive Is people saying that they finally can come out and feel normal. They don't feel alienated. And so that's what we're going to go for in our brick and mortar. You know, it's going to feel like any other cool new cocktail bar just without the alcohol.
2: What about selling these beverages to local bars or grocery stores or even breweries?
4: Well, we are not a distributor. So Ah. as far as that goes, there are plenty of distributors and the brands themselves can sell directly to stores. And I would encourage restaurants and stores to reach out to those brands and try them and get them in stock because, you know, they've really been picking up speed.
2: Lissa Eubanks and Savannah Rainey, founders of Zilch Market, the non-alcoholic pop-up bar. Their next pop-up experience will be April 8th, Friday at Taproom Coffee from 6 to 9 p.m. More information about the organization and their future pop-ups will appear on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Horizon Theatre brings the light to the stage, and we'll talk with the director and lead actor. Plus, Reeves House Gallery in Woodstock explores the intersection of art and technology, with their current exhibition, Coded Realities. Then, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes further examines the subject with host of the TechCast podcast, WABE's Emil Moffat. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Light. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at W-A-B-E City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.